evening. My name is Freddie. Uh, before we jump into the sermon, I'm going to invite a reader up, but before even that, I want to remind you of our Bible reading plan. So this little card, hopefully you've seen it before. As you know, this is something that we started this year. We want to be a church that is deeply rooted, and one of the strategies to pursue that is reading through the Bible in a year. Last year, Mark really emphasized prayer, and we had that five by five by five card. We will continue to do that this year. And I want to encourage you to join us in this reading plan. If you are, like me, a younger person that likes the apps, or maybe an older person that likes to use their phone, maybe you only have one hand, maybe it's part of your morning routine, we have this available through the YouVersion app. If you go on the Northview website, you can join one of the reading groups. There are four reading groups for Downs Road, which means that about 600 people can join us in reading through the Bible together. So if you have not ever read through the Bible in a year, this is a good year to start. We have a, an on-ramp every single month. So join us starting February 1st. So Juliet, come on up. It's a longer passage, so I invited someone else to read, so you don't have to hear just my voice. John 6, to 59. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the, Lord saw, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate, the fill, ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he, whom he has sent. So they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have, but I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws, me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Thank you, Juliet. If you eat regular food, like regular people, you have likely eaten sliced bread, yes? Nod your head with me if you've eaten sliced bread. This passage talks about bread and it talks about many other things. It uses very colorful language. The phrase, the best invention since sliced bread, is relatively new. It came to us from a comedian in the 1950s. But what is interesting about that expression is that sliced bread is actually relatively new. Humans have been eating bread or a bread type thing as long as there have been people. There's records of eating this kind of thing as long as people have written things down. And you might not know the name, but the man who invented sliced bread was an American. And his name, yeah, come on, I love that. Uh, it was my cousin, it was not. His, his name is Otto Frederick Rohweder, so definitely not related to me. He sounds German or something. He was born in Des Moines, Iowa in the 1880s. And this man, through over a decade of effort, through many disappointments, created the first machine 
that automatically sliced bread once it came off the line. Like they would get baked in the factory. And there used to be a time when people thought this was madness. They were like, no, 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 you slice the bread at home. How, how on earth could a factory do that for me? I, I know what I need. But in 1928, the first bread slicing machine was produced. And within two weeks, the, the factory that was producing it, their sales increased by 2,000%, like each week. So you're like, wow, this is, this is an invention. This is a good thing. And now you would find sliced bread in every single house across the US, across Canada. Some of us today don't eat gluten, I guess, but you'll still find gluten-free bread. Nonetheless, people eat bread or bread-type products. Sliced bread is the most basic, most accessible food in the world. So it makes great sense that Jesus takes bread and after multiplying it earlier in John chapter six, gives profound theological reflection on who he is and on what he has done for humanity by talking about bread. Jesus uses bread to teach us the most important thing in life, which is knowing him. John, in his gospel, makes a big deal about belief. And Jesus, in our particular passage today, talks about knowing him. We're gonna spend a great deal of time this, this evening talking about belief. And I, the takeaway for today, the big idea, is that true belief sees the sun truly. So when you walk out of here today, I hope you realize, I hope you remember that true belief sees the sun truly. I have three points. The first is the object of belief. The second is the nature of belief. The third is the paradox of belief. So we're gonna start with the first point, the object of belief. And then at each point, I'll read a few verses. We started with Juliet reading the whole thing. It's 37 verses. There's no way I could walk line by line through it. There's some stuff that got left behind on the preaching table of, of preparation. But for today, we're gonna emphasize belief. So first point, the object of belief. I'm gonna read John 6, 25 to 27 and 35 to 40. When they found him on the other side of the sea, when these crowds found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate, you, you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you, for on him, God the father has set his seal. Passage continues. Jesus said to him, or said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he has given me but raise it on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Our passage starts with Jesus reflecting on some of the things that he has done. In the Gospel of John, he records seven signs, seven miracles of Jesus, and he records them for the purpose of convincing his audience, people like you and me, that Jesus was who he said he was. He did things like turn water into wine, heal people, feed 5,000. That was in John chapter six, and then also walked on water. The most recent sign was 
what Mark preached about last week at the beginning of chapter six, where Jesus multiplied bread and fed over 5,000 people. It says 5,000 men. So it could have been, like Mark said, it could have been 5,000. It could have been up to 25,000 people. Jesus fed a whole bunch of people. And our passage tonight is the very next day. Jesus fed people. And you would think that, you know, this is, this is a miracle. Like, let's, let's keep the momentum going. Like Jesus preached to him. But Jesus goes up the mountain. He, kind of, he ditches the crowd and then leaves in a boat that night. This is the next day. The crowd's like, wait a minute. That guy left. Let's go follow him. And when they come to Jesus, they, obviously they're there. They're like, this man is special. There is something about him. He can make bread from five loaves and two fish. Like, I need more of this man. And Jesus calls them out. He says, you're here because your bellies are, are empty. You're here because you're hungry. You woke up this morning and you were hungry again. So you got on the boat and you went across the sea. And here you are, wanting to see what else I can do. But the signs of Jesus aren't just cool things he does to meet the immediate needs of people. There are things that he does to verify who he is. Jesus makes claims about himself and the signs are meant to, to prove it. They're the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus claims to be God. We're gonna see this in a, in a few moments that Jesus claimed to be divine. And if Jesus is divine, he has to do the things that, that God can do create stuff and, and heal people and do miraculous things. So what kind of things did Jesus do? Well, he took water and he made it into wine. Uh, there was a man who was crippled his entire life and Jesus healed him so that he could like get up and walk in that moment. Uh, he fed people a massive crowd from one dude's lunch. So Jesus is doing things that you're like, oh my goodness, this, this man, he's, he's different. Maybe what he's saying is true, but I, I'm not convinced. I, I saw this in a much smaller expression. This, a couple summers ago, I, I was working for my father-in-law. They live in Alberta and my father works in, or my father-in-law works in agriculture, creating, building uh, irrigation systems for farms, right? Alberta, they need more rain. So they have either above ground or underground irrigation systems. And if you know anything about water, water will always find the fastest way to escape. So when you're putting in these pipes, you need perfect seals. And my father-in-law had hired a welder who, let's just say, was not amazing on his welds, and there was not perfect seals on his piping. So my father-in-law's frustrated. He's like, this is literally my, my livelihood. I'm gonna hire a different guy. The first guy, who was not amazing at welding, totally looked the part. He had, like, great equipment, right? Like he had the mask, he had the leathers, he had the, you know, the jacket, he had the MIG welder. He like, he looked the part. He had the little card that showed he was red sealed. Like this guy's a, a skilled tradesperson. He, he knows what he's doing. But when you checked his work, you would see little water coming out of pipes where it should not be coming out. So my father-in-law hired another guy and this other guy, a little bit older, did not present anywhere near as well. Like if, if you've been around trade guys, you know that as they get older, they can be a little, we'll say crotchety, right? They're, they're not as, if you're a trades guy, I'm sorry. Mark told me to say that. <clears throat> I don't even know if he's here, but if he is, I'm throwing him under the bus. But trades guys, as they get older, right? Like they, they wear old jeans. Like they have one pair of work pants, right? The, They've had the same welding helmet for 20 years and they're not gonna change now. So the guy didn't really look that impressive, 
but he worked really well. He didn't really communicate, like he didn't talk. The, the younger guy was a lot more fun. You know, you could talk to him about stuff. The older guy, way less fun, but really, really effective at what he had been hired to do. Both of the men claimed the same thing. I am a skilled tradesperson. I have the card to prove it. I'm a welder. But one of them was objectively better. Both guys claimed something, but what really mattered is their actual ability. What you actually do proves what you claim about yourself. Jesus, in his signs, is proving what he claims about himself. If he claims to be God, he better do the stuff that God can do. That's why he heals people. That's why he makes food come from nothing or from very little. In addition to the things that he did, Jesus made explicit statements, well, explicit to the original audience, that showed that he believed himself to be God. Right, there's three specific ones in our passage. The son of man, the bread of life, or the bread come down from above, and the son of, of God. So we're gonna walk through each one individually. So the first one, in verse 27, Jesus uses the title, the son of man. This is one of Jesus' favorite titles throughout the, all the gospels, right? If you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three use the title significantly more, but even John's gospel. Here we are in chapter six, three different times before this, Jesus takes this title upon himself. Jesus refers to himself as this son of man. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that this is a significant term. This passage, or there's an Old Testament background to this in Daniel chapter seven, where there's this scene that Daniel has this prophetic vision and he's looking and he sees who he calls the ancient of days. So God on his throne and then this, this person approaches him. And Daniel describes him as someone who looks like, like a son of man, a human. This human approaches the throne of God. And then God, the ancient of days, hands him over dominion. And the way Daniel describes it, he says, to him was given dominion over all peoples and languages and, and nations. So this, this title led to an expectation amongst the Jewish nation that God was gonna raise up a mighty king a king who would be uniquely anointed by God, not just to rule over Israel, but the world. And Jesus takes that title and he says, wow, the son of man, you must believe in the son of man. So it is no surprise then that last week, Mark covered this, that the people, after he multiplies bread, the people decide we're gonna make this dude king. It doesn't matter if he's ready or not. We're gonna take him, we're gonna carry him to Jerusalem, we're gonna put a crown on his head and we're gonna proclaim him king over the world, and Jesus goes up the mountain. Jesus escapes. What, what was Jesus thinking? If he uses the title that proves that he is king, if he's taking that upon himself, he's saying, I am that, I'm the fulfillment of that promise. Hundreds of years ago, when Daniel saw that, that was me. If, if Jesus believed that, why would he run away? In, in one word, timing. The timing wasn't right. If you live in Abbotsford, what is the difference between a three-minute commute on South Fraser and a 12-minute commute on South Fraser? Timing. If you hit one red light, you will hit every red light. I've experienced this personally as we, you know, we drive home with crying babies and you hit the one red light and you're wondering, Lord, why would you do this to me? But then you hit the next red light and then you hit the next red light and it takes you forever, well, 12 minutes, but it feels like forever to get from one end of South Fraser to the other. Timing is everything. 
the people of Israel that Jesus was interacting with, these crowds, their timing was all wrong. They saw Jesus, they heard the title, and they're like, yes, we're gonna make you king. But Jesus still had work to do. He wasn't ready to sit on the throne yet. If you know the rest of the gospel of John, Jesus has to die on a cross. Jesus has to resurrect to new life. And when he has died for the forgiveness of sins, and when he's resurrected to new life, then he will ascend. Then he will sit on his throne. Then he will say, all authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. But that time has not yet come. So Jesus calls himself the son of man, making a specific claim about who he is, about what God is going to do through him. Secondly, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And this is Jesus giving, again, theological commentary on the miracle or on the sign from earlier in John chapter 6, where he multiplied bread for 5,000 people. Jesus is reflecting on that experience, and he's communicating something about himself. The people show up in, in this story, and they're hungry again. Verse 26 tells us Jesus calls them out. He's like, you're, you're here because you want more bread. But Jesus is taking their need and saying something profound about himself. It doesn't matter how often you eat. It doesn't matter how much you eat. You will be hungry again. And Jesus takes that idea and he says, no, no, I'm the bread of life. And I can actually give eternal life. Jesus is claiming something profound about himself. If the son of man wasn't direct enough, that Jesus is special, there's something unique that God is doing through him. Jesus claiming to be the bread of life who gives eternal life, the bread of life who's come down from heaven is explicit. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be exactly like God. If I told you, or if I asked you the question, do you know Harry? You would immediately ask me, Harry what? Or Harry from where? If I said, do you know Prince Harry? I'm fairly certain most of you would say yes. You might not want to know him, but, but you would know who he is. Prince Harry is well known because of his title. He, he's a prince. He's the son of a king. The stuff that is true about his dad is true about him. He is this royal line. Now, Prince Harry is a mere human and somewhat insufferable, kind of a whiner with no marketable skills. But <laughs> Jesus, I'm obviously not opinionated about it. Uh, Jesus claims to be God. Jesus, in the same way that the title of Prince Harry reflects who his father is, a king, Jesus claiming to be God, claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be bread from above, reflects who his dad is. What is true of the father is true of the son. Jesus is saying, no, I'm, I'm like my dad. I'm, I'm like God. And the people are starting to be uncomfortable. The crowds are curious, but there are people in the crowd who are angry. We, we meet a group of people in this passage. In verse 41, we meet them, who John calls the, the Jews. And the Jews doesn't mean an ethnic group, but it, it means the, the religious leaders. It's the term that John uses to describe the people who most oppose Jesus. And these people are there in the crowds. And as Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the son of man. I'm bread from above. I'm the son of God. They're hearing this and they're thinking, wait a minute. Who on earth does this guy think he is? If you remember a few weeks back in John chapter five, we were introduced to this group of people. The Jews and Jesus had this debate over the appropriate way to honor the Sabbath. 
And in John 5, 17 and 18, we read these words. Jesus answered them. So not crowds. Jesus answered the Jews. Jesus answered these people who were opposing him. My father is working until now. Which you're like, my father. Like, what is true of the, of the father is true of the son. Jesus is saying, my father is working until now. And I am working. I'm just like my daddy. I do the things that my dad does. And they hear that. And then verse 18 tells us, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus takes these terms, the, the son of man, the bread of life, the son of God, and he points them all at himself. And as we read this story, not a single person in that crowd was confused as to what Jesus was saying. He was not saying, I'm a smart dude. He was not saying, I'm a great teacher. He was saying, I am God. And everyone there understood. And there were some people who were kind of like, I don't know if I want to receive it. And there were some people who were sharpening the sticks and lighting the torches. They wanted to kill him. Jesus made it clear that he saw himself as equal to God. And that brings us, I think, to the first application point of the object of belief that the whole point of Jesus communicating these things to people is so they would see him clearly. Jesus wants to be known. He didn't have to say anything. He multiplied the bread and he ran up the mountain. He could have just left. When the crowds came to him, he didn't have to say anything, but he looks at them and he says, no, 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 I, I'm the son of man. I'm bread from heaven. I am the son of God. Jesus wants to be known. And because he is unique, he can meet a unique need. See, all of us, people like you and me, all of us have a, a, a condition called sin. There's something wrong with us. We all die. We all need eternal life. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm different because I am bread from above, not the bread that you find in a store or in someone's lunch. I can give you eternal life. Jesus is offering eternal life to anyone who believes. So if you have never made that decision, I, I wanna follow Jesus. I want eternal life. I'm gonna trust him. A passage like this, I think, is a pointed reminder that Jesus wants you to know him. Jesus wants you to follow him. Jesus makes himself known so that we can see him and believe in him. If you've never believed, today could be the day. It doesn't matter how you say it, where you're crying, you're praying, you're whispering, you don't even say it out loud, but make that decision to follow Jesus. He is the object of our belief. That's our first point. Our second point is the nature of belief. And we're gonna read in John 6 again, verses 28 to 29, and then circle back to 40. They said to him, so this is the crowds again. The crowd said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Believe in me, believe in me. This is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. Mark started our series in, in the book of John by emphasizing that one of John's main themes was this idea of belief. That John wrote the gospel so that people would believe in Jesus. In the first part of our passage today, we see that Jesus wants to be known so people will believe in him. 
So if we see how important it is in the entire gospel of John, and specifically in John chapter six, I think the question should naturally arise, what is belief? You can keep using the word over and over again, John, but what is it? I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. The reality for us, I think we import our own meanings to this word. It is so common in our world. It's so common amongst the church that we, we all say, we all use it, and we don't all mean the same thing. I think when, when you speak to most people, they would define belief as stuff that Christians think. Like it's something that goes on in here, or maybe they'll say in here, but either way, it's, it's an internal thing. Like you, there are things you have to believe, things you have to know, things you have to trust about who God is. And this, this is a, a true statement. God is creator. Uh, humanity is fallen in sin and needs to be saved. People can have eternal life by believing in Jesus. Uh, resurrection is the end result of those who put their faith in him. There are things we must believe to be Christian. That, that's in here, that's in here. But defining belief narrowly as just stuff we know or stuff we feel is only a half truth. What about like Christian practice? What about the stuff that you do with your life? What about Christian ethics? The things that you value? What about your character? Is there Christian character? And when we start to think more deeply about believing in Jesus, I think it becomes impossible to define it narrowly as just the stuff you know or feel. It also includes the things that you do. So I, I'd like us to think of belief as, as knowledge. It is internal, but it flows into action. So as we hear this phrase, I, don't want, you to be, I want you to be thinking, belief is knowledge that flows into action. I wanna give you a small example from my own life. We have two little boys. The oldest is just under two. And my contributions as a father is that I often bathe him in the evenings. That's our, our quality time after I get home from work. We have dinner together, we run upstairs, he gets bathed. I want you to know Isaiah has never once died while being bathed, never once. So it's relevant to the story. The other day, so he, almost two years, he's been bathed by me for a very long time, multiple times a week, as long as he's been alive. And we have never had a problem. The other day, he was being a turkey. He didn't want to get out of the, of the tub. And to entice him to get out, I pretended he was a rocket ship, you know, and then lifted him. And I was so excited and so focused on not dropping him, because if you've ever held a wet baby, they're very slippery, that I, I wrapped him in the towel, I shook him and lifted him, and I smoked his head on the curtain rod. And it relaxed, he's alive, he's fine. Uh, he was upset, but he didn't super cry, but he was like, ow, 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 and he's like pointing at it and demanded a kiss, and I apologized profusely, daddy, sorry, daddy, sorry, owie, 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 kissed him on the head. And that was like two weeks ago. Every single time we get in the bath, when I approach him to pick him up, he like takes a step back and points. And I'm like, and then when I, I'm like, Isaiah, daddy's fine, okay? And I wrap him and he'll put his hands on his head as I'm lifting him. So if you were gonna put our, like, our definition of belief on Isaiah, Isaiah believes that his dad loves him, cares for him, would never hurt him, right? When, when he's scared, he calls out for me. When he's hurt, he calls out for me. But in this moment, what is Isaiah's action? 
a, a tremendous amount of distrust. You would think his dad smokes his head every single time he's ever seen him. I think sometimes Christian life is experienced like this, where we believe in Jesus. No, we know it, we know it, we know it. But then, you know, life is a little shaky and there's not a lot of action or the action goes in the wrong direction. Isaiah should trust his dad and we ought to trust God. We know things about who Jesus is, but it's more than just knowing. This knowing has to flow into an action. And that action, when we look at John, we could simply replace it with the word obedience. It's, it's obedience. Belief is both an internal and external action that we could just define as obedience. I'm gonna give you two proof texts. So John 640, I want, I want you to see the internal and external belief. And then I'm gonna show you John 8, where we see how he defines it as obedience. So John 6:40. this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. We see these two things. We see this belief, that's an internal reality, but we see something external, this seeing. People actually had to come to Jesus. They had to move across the sea. They had to come to him and hear him teach. In, this scene is taking place in a synagogue. People are gathering, they, have, they actually have to come to Jesus. There's an internal belief that flows into an external action. And John 8 makes it clear that that external action is obedience. John 8, 31 to 32 says this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, we see internal words, this belief, this knowing, these are internal things, but then we see an external word, abide. And for John, abide doesn't just mean like hang out with, it means participate in, it means become like him. It means obey Jesus. So John is saying, if you've believed in Jesus, you obey him and you know things about him, internal and external action. Knowledge that flows into action. Belief is necessary for all people and John is careful to define it as he works through the rest of his gospel. There are three different ways that Jesus commands belief. And I think he intends this kind of response, an internal knowledge leading to an external action of following him, of obeying him. The first one is in verse 29, where Jesus says, believe, believe in me, believe in him. Jesus commands the, the crowds as they come to him, as they know that he can make bread from a tiny sack lunch. Jesus says, yeah, be believe in me. And he says things about who he is. This is a clear, clear direction. And the people are like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, what do you mean? Believe in you. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to do it. Can you maybe do the bread again and maybe I'll believe? The people are indifferent. They reject him. So Jesus moves from clear command, believe in me, to a metaphor. Receive the bread from heaven. Right? He's, he's saying, no, that's me. I'm the bread from heaven. I can give you eternal life. Receive it. I think he, again, is thinking, that believe in me, that knowledge of who I am, I'm the son of God. I can give you eternal life. I can forgive you of your sins and follow me, obey me, become one of my disciples. Accept this bread, receive it from heaven in verse 35. Why does Jesus use this metaphor? I think he uses it 
because it is so, so accessible. We hear bread and we think, you know, that $1 loaf at Superstore, right? It's like half air. You're like, it, it's not filling. It's cheap. You usually get it and it's already mushed by the time you get home because they lump it in together and the grocery bag's funny. We think that when we hear bread. But Jesus' original audience would not have thought that. They would have thought of thick, thick loaves that you, if you ate that, you could work in the field the entire day. That was Jesus' world. It was an agrarian society. If you couldn't work in the field, your family starved. So if there was something that could satisfy you, that could fill you, so you could work an entire day and provide for your family, you wanted that thing. That was bread. And Jesus takes that idea and he says, in the same way that bread fills you and gives you life, I can do that. And you eat bread every single day. Follow me once and I'll give you eternal life. Jesus takes an accessible image and points them to something about himself. I want you to dwell on this for a second. I, it's not just cheap bread, it's not just a meal. I think Jesus is pushing them towards this, this obedience, this following him, this experience of abiding in Jesus. So it would, to us, if Jesus was saying this to us, I think he would use more colorful language. He would say, I, I was at this you know, fancy restaurant. So my wife and I went to one a few years ago. If you know me, you know that I'm not a fine dining guy. My, my favorite flavor is ketchup and hot sauce. So it, we've gone to two fancy restaurants and I requested ketchup at both places and now they won't let me back in. So I asked for potatoes, so I wanted ketchup. It, seemed, it made sense to me, but they thought I was lame. But anyways, I went to this fancy restaurant. We walked in, it's called Savio Volpe in, in Vancouver. And you, you actually don't order. Like you sit down and you tell them how many people are there. And then they just bring you course after course after course. And I, like, I'm a quantity guy which should be as no, a no surprise to anyone if my favorite flavor is ketchup. So I'm pretty satisfied with, you know, Costco tortellini, right? Like that, that's good in my book. And Costco tortellini is good, but hand-rolled ravioli is like really good. And that's, they served us like this, you know, bread and oil and it was, it was like thick, thick bread. And then a, a salad with a vinegar dressing that I, did, I couldn't even pronounce it and it was just okay. But when we got to the pasta, it was an experience. It was, it was satisfying. The plate wasn't even that big, but it was so dense that I, I was full. And I was the perfect amount of full, right? Where you, got, you can get up and you can move around, like you can take a walk after. Not the full where you're like, someone's gotta roll me out of here. Like, that kind of satisfaction, that kind of experience. That's what Jesus is saying he provides. He's the bread of life, not the bread of okay, not the bread of just good enough, the bread of life, that he can fill you so you're satisfied and so you can get up and do something with your life. Jesus is saying, that's who I am. And the crowd still misses it. He tells them, believe in me and they miss it. He says, I'm the bread of life, and they miss it. So Jesus ups the ante. He turns to tremendously colorful and frankly, offensive language to get them to see that, no, no, no. there is something unique about me. He tells them, eat my flesh, drink my blood. 
Eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Drink the blood of the Son of Man. This is, like, to put it lightly, a hot take, right? I, I'm like, I don't know in what situation someone would think this is a compelling argument. Like, I want you to believe in me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. But Jesus uses it. Jesus wanted to be known. Jesus wanted them to believe. So why would he use this language? I think Jesus used this language to shock them, to make them aware that they were going to miss out on life. Any Jewish person would know that you do not eat anything with the blood in it. Jewish, uh, Jewish food laws required people to eat a very narrow spectrum of the animal kingdom. And on top of that, you had to cook thoroughly what you ate. Leviticus 3.17 tells us, is Moses speaking, it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. So Jesus uses this offensive language to expose their lack of understanding. No person would have thought that Jesus actually meant eat my blood, drink my flesh. But they would have been mad. They would have been shocked. They would have been surprised. And that Jesus was saying, you are going to miss it. I'm bread that gives life. Don't miss out. So in this story, we see that the nature of belief is that Jesus wants to be known. And that belief, that belief in Jesus is an internal knowledge that flows into an external action, namely obedience. So I, I want to test it. When, when we read God's word, if belief in Jesus is knowing who he is, flowing out into obedience, how do we respond? When we read passages like Ephesians 4.29 that says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. What's your language or tone like towards your children, your parents, your coworkers, your friends, your classmates? How do you talk to the people around you? Are you prone to anger or gossip or slander or outbursts? And more importantly, are you willing to change? Believing means obeying. Jesus says, let no corrupt, or God's word says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. In my own life, I've been particularly challenged by Proverbs 27 too. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. And you read this passage and it is a painful reminder of the human tendency towards boasting. It is very easy for me to talk about the things I'm good at and only talk about the things I'm good at. And yet I read God's word and I'm reminded that speaking highly of yourself, speaking only of yourself, is not conducive towards growing in humility. It is nothing like being like Jesus. So I face the question, am I willing to change? Believing means obeying. When we see the, the nature of belief, it is evident that belief in Jesus is an internal knowledge that flows into external action, namely obedience. We've covered the object of belief the nature of belief. Lastly, we're gonna cover the paradox of belief. This one's only two verses, so it'll be much shorter. John 6, 37 and 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What we have already seen is that Jesus wants to be known. He wants everyone to believe in him. If, if you read through the rest of the scriptures, you'll interact with passages like Acts 17.30 that tell us that God commands repentance. God expects all people to turn and believe in Jesus. And yet, the world is not like that at all. There's this problem where, where people don't come to Jesus. Even in our passage, we see it, that the crowds come to Jesus, but they don't really come to Jesus. They don't, they don't believe in him. And people have all kinds of reasons, right? The, the, the reality of suffering makes it really hard for some people to come to God. They're like, I don't know why you think I care about eternal life when this life sucks. There's no way God is good. There are people who, because life is really good, they don't actually need God. They're like, I got money in the bank. I got a great house. I got a great family. I'm very healthy. What could God give me? There are people who are running from God because of their own sin, either because scripture forbids something that they desperately want or because people have told them that the Bible says something and they, like, I, could, I want nothing to do with that God. People are hostile. They're indifferent. And maybe saddest of all, undecided. One foot in the world, one foot in the faith. When we talk about the human condition, it is evident that people do not come to Jesus. They do not believe in him of their own volition. So what, what is God gonna do? John 6, tells us what God has done. I'm gonna walk us through the, just the, the words in this passage and we're just gonna use informal logic. Informal logic is just what is the relation between each phrase to the next phrase. I am borrowing this from R.C. Sproul. He said it way better than I could. He's since passed away, so I'm carrying forward the mantle of teaching this verse, I guess. So no one, the very first phrase in John 6, is that no one can come to me. This no one is what we would call a universal negative. It is lumping every person together and is saying this group of people, like everyone on the planet, no person ever, that's the group I have in mind. So all people are included and we are told no one can. Now can is the language of ability. So people have an inability to do something. All people, no one, can. So all people have an inability to do, to do what? Come. In our passage, how does Jesus use that word? It means like, come to me, believe in me. So John 6, teaches that there is no person who has the ability to come to Jesus. That's terrible news. So what has God done? If no one can come, we, we desperately need help. And the, the phrase, or the word turns, the passage turns on the word unless. Unless is a necessary condition. So no one can, is no person has the ability to come to Jesus unless. There is a condition that if met would change the reality of this group of people. Unless the father draws. And this father draws is the language of, of transformation, of inner transformation. If you remember in the fall, 
we talked about John 3. And John 3, 3 says that a person must be born again or born from above. God does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. John 6, 44 is making that even more clear. No, the Father draws you. He does something internal that pulls you toward himself. And lastly, Jesus says, I will raise him on the last day. Jesus is guaranteeing the outcome. If the Father draws you, Jesus will raise you on the last day. And here we see the paradox of belief because Jesus commands belief. He tells all people, believe in me, knowing that we cannot, of our own effort, believe in him. We must believe, but no one can come. And this is where we see the work of God. As we look at salvation, I think we have tremendous questions. How on earth does this work? How can I hold these two things together? That God wants me to come, but I can't. And then God helps me, but it's actually my choice because I have to believe in him. I'm commanded to believe in him. And this is how we see God in salvation being glorious, working for our good. God is drawing people to himself. He gives them the new birth. He gives us new hearts. That's what this new birth is, so that people want to be near him. This belief that is an internal knowledge that flows out into an external action of obedience. God has to give you that, that belief. God has to give you that desire to obey. And the good news is that John 6, says he does. He does give that to people. And you might be sitting here wondering, why are we still talking about this? If it's a paradox, if it doesn't fully make sense, I'm like, I, I don't really even understand what you're saying. So what changes for me? Why even talk about this? I think it is a tremendous comfort. And my hope is that in hearing this, you would have comfort in two particular ways. The first is that you would know that God is helping you persevere. That the faith, this internal knowledge that flows into an external action of, of obedience, God is helping you in that journey where you have to continue in the faith. You must persevere. Christian life is not a one day thing. It's an all of life thing. And God is saying, no, no, I'm helping you do that. I've, I've drawn you. The sun will raise you. Persevere. But more than that, I think we could accurately say that God preserves us. Turning the onus on, onto what God has done, putting the emphasis on his work. Three different times in our passage, Jesus says, I will raise them. I will raise him on the last day. Jesus is guaranteeing the outcome. If you have believed in Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna make sure that you finish the race. And in a room of this size, I know there are people that have to hear that. I had an experience a few weeks back where I met with a, with a man, a guy who goes to Northview, and we were talking about some of the struggles that he and his wife had been going through. And this man has walked seven years uh, through infertility and they have lost children. And I'm sitting there looking at this man, tired, because I, I didn't sleep good the night before because I have a little one. I have everything that this man wants. And he's sharing his hurt and as 
in the moment, I just felt the spirit leading me. And I, I asked him, how would you describe your faith right now? And I assumed he would give me something dark. Because what, what are you gonna say when life has sucked for seven years? When you've been through the ringer of unanswered prayers, of pain, of disappointment, of seeing everyone else have the life that you want, what would you say? The man kind of looked at me, very soft-spoken, very earnest. He said, well, Freddie, I would say hopeful because I know it will get better one day. Who says that? Who says that as, as they have been through the ringer? I know people who have walked away for a lot less because they didn't get the job they wanted or someone dumped them. And this man, through seven years of pain, says, I know it will get better. I think he knows this truth that God is holding on to you far more than you're holding on to him. That is what John 6, 44 is trying to remind us of that God is holding on to you far more than you are holding on to him. We need to be reminded of this truth because we will all go through hard things. The beauty of this verse is that God is saying, I'm gonna make sure that you're okay. And that is very good news. We learn the object of belief, the nature of belief, the paradox of belief in this passage. My hope is that you see what, who, you see who Jesus is in the passage we just walked through. And more than that, that you accurately understand belief that the Lord is calling you. If you are a Christian, the Lord is calling you to know him truly and to that flow into an outworking of obedience in your life. And you are not in this alone. He is holding on to you far more than you're holding on to him. Bow your heads. I'm gonna pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder from this passage that you are near, that you draw us to yourself, that you're holding onto us far more than we are holding onto you. Father, we wanna know you truly and we wanna obey you truly. So Father, I pray for every person in this room that you would help us. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what their life has been like. I don't know what their week has been like, but I know that everyone here must believe in you and that you're drawing people to yourself. So Father, I pray that you draw more and more people to yourself, that they would see you clearly and believe. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.